Both this world and the world beyond have been revealed by him who knows. What's within the reach of Mara and also what's beyond his reach. Fully knowing all of the world, the wise one, by awakening, has opened the door to non-death, which safely reaches Nibbana. Mara's stream is penetrated, disrupted, and cleared of its weeds. Be greatly joyful, therefore, monks, for safety is within your reach. So I, I found this verse at the end of this particular sutta because it's um, in the most recent uh, issue of Insight, which is the newsletter put out by the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and uh, has just this, uh, these last three verses with an explication by Andy Olensky, who's one of the directors of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and a friend of ours. And so I liked very much what he had to say. So I started with this. I liked his, um, his remarks on the text. So here are some of mine and some of his. Let's go over it again. Both this world and the world beyond have been revealed by him who knows. That's already a great idea that um, there is something beyond the world that we see, that we live most in, that can be seen, and that the way towards seeing can be pointed to. It's already exciting. What's within the reach of Mara and what's also beyond his reach. So Andy says here, Mara is the embodiment of the lower reaches of our human nature those parts of ourselves rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion that prompt us to act selfishly and without care. But there's a, a place to be that's beyond the reach of those tendencies, and we could get there. Someone's pointed out the way. Fully knowing all of the world, the wise one, by awakening, has opened the door to non-death, which safely reaches Nibbana. I thought about, what is non-death? But non-death is what it means to be really fully alive, awake in this moment, not in jeopardy of um, missing one's life, really awake in this moment. I was so touched with um, Sally's... um, talk last night, particularly the part where she talked about, um, told the story of someone talking to the Dalai Lama monk who had been in prison, tortured in all those terrible ways, and saying, I was in terrible danger, and uh, His Holiness agreeing that, yes, he must have been terribly frightened. He was in terrible mortal danger. And he said, no, no, that wasn't the danger that I was in. I was in danger of becoming angry. That's so touching to think that the great danger is not that physical harm might befall us. These are fragile bodies and it's a complicated life. So in the terms of preserving the body, we are never safe. 
But preserving the heart is a possibility. I love that idea. But the great danger, he said, is I might become angry. I think about when we get caught up in an anger or a lust, when we get confused and deluded, we are kidnapped out of this life. We're missing it. We're not alive. That's being dead in this lifetime. We're kidnapped into not loving. I think about kidnap being a thing that happens to you. May it, may, you know, I hope we never know of it, anything about it, but I think about kidnapped as being taken from our home. And I think about, if I think about our home as a compassionate heart, when the mind is kidnapped by greed or hatred or delusion, we can't be at home in the safety of a compassionate heart. So the last uh, paragraph, the last verse of those three verses, Mara's stream is penetrated, disrupted and cleared of its weeds. Be greatly joyful, therefore, monks. Think about Mara's stream as uh, that, as representing the flow of samsara, the onflowing of unwholesome states and unskillful intentions and unfortunate karma constructions. But we can get through it. It can be penetrated. Actually, in the whole of the sutta, which I'll talk about in a minute, it gives the, the metaphor of a cowherd uh, urging a herd of cows across a stream and how it's difficult to cross a stream, especially when the torrent is flowing quickly downstream. But if you're strong enough, and if the strongest of the herd lead the way, they can cut a path. This is actually called cutting the stream, this particular piece of this particular sutta. can actually go against the current and come to safety on the other side. So you can go against the current of the onflow of samsara and the unfortunate arising of difficult karmic states and come to safety on the other side. So I love the end two sentences where it says, Be greatly joyful, therefore, monks, for safety is within your reach. And I think to myself as I read it, it's within our reach as well for us now. So I got really excited when I read about this in the the Insight newsletter, and I thought, well, I think I'll talk about that. And then I thought, well, I'll go back and read the whole sutta, which I did, and it's a very short one, and talks about what does a skilled cowherd do. And it's a skilled cowherd, picks out the right season to travel when the, the stream is not too swollen, puts the herd all together, puts the strongest of the leaders of the herd in front, urges them out. And it's a very beautiful presentation of the herd crossing the stream with the strongest and the biggest, with really the hugest crossing first. And you have, I had a mental image of cutting a path really through the stream. They talk about cutting a path or penetrating the stream or breasting the stream is another translation of one of the Pali words and, that suggest it. And I thought about, imagined uh, the strongest and the biggest really uh, making a dent in the current so that the, 
followers behind could pass behind. And then it ends by saying, although these, and they're, they're characterized as the bulls of the herd, the biggest males of the herd, it says the smallest of the babies is urged across the stream by the lowing of its mother on the other side. It's wonderful poetry, you know, that so I get to think about everybody gets to uh, move together as a community and everybody's voice and everybody's muscle and everybody's heart is what's needed to get the whole community to the other side. So I started by thinking, well, this is probably a talk about Sangha. I'll give a talk about Sangha. What I had at this point was a sutta in search of a topic. <laughs> so I uh, thought about what topic could I talk about that I could use this sutta as an illustration for. So I said, okay, give a Sangha topic, uh, Sangha talk about really how every voice in the community is really what we need to get ourselves safely to the other side. And everybody in their role is what's pulling us over. So I thought about that for a while. And then I thought, well, I could uh, also give a uh, refuge talk. This could be a refuge talk about uh, uh, refuge in the Buddha or refuge in the Buddha as an example of the possibility of an enlightened heart refuge in enlightened teachers in this tradition, in any tradition, who have pointed the way since the beginning of time that we know about for seekers in all spiritual traditions to get across this very same river that all human beings have to cross. I said, so I could talk, do a refuge talk, talking about refuge in enlightened teachers and the possibility of our own hearts with human hearts for enlightened teachers, our own hearts making it across the river. Then I thought, well, I could uh, do a refuge in the Dhamma talk as well, that uh, really there are uh, tried and true paths. There are people who know where the river is the narrowest and what seasons are the best to cross in. So maybe it's really a refuge in the Dhamma talk. Then, of course, I already told you I thought it was a refuge in the Sangha talk because everybody helps to get the whole community to the other side. Then I thought, well, maybe it's a meta talk, really, <laughs> because, because I really like that idea of the lowing of the mother, bringing the smallest calf to the other side, because it reminded me of that line out of the Metta Sutta that said, just as a mother would give her life to protect her child, her only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts with loving kindness to all beings. I thought, maybe it's a metta talk. <coughs> then I thought, it's probably a right effort talk. It's very extremely hard to cross that stream. And I was so inspired by Sally's talk last night about the four different right efforts that we could make. And I thought, well, I could take those four different efforts and apply them to this particular description of the cow herd. And I thought it's probably a Four Noble Truths talk, <laughs> particularly a talk about the causes of suffering, how easy it is to get caught in that stream of craving that conditions more and more and more 
forms of samsara. I thought about, um, came to mind a story about, uh, I love this story, it's a story that my friend and colleague and teacher Sharon Salzberg tells a lot, but um, always comes to mind when I think about how easy it is to be seduced into yet another crave. The story that I like so much is uh, uh, about um, a time that Sharon was in Jerusalem not so long ago. And uh, walking through the gates, through the Jaffa Gate into the old city, and then walking down the steps uh, of the Arab market into the heart of the old city. And those steps are lined with um, small shops, one after another, all full of all kinds of wares that <clears throat> tourists are often interested in buying. Lots of stuff in the shops and lots of stuff outside for you to browse and look at. And uh, the people who work in the shops often stand outside and call you in and call your attention to what they're selling. And Sharon said she was walking down the steps and really purposefully going to where she was going at some appointment, she had a place to go. And walking down the street, those steps, and she'd been down those steps before and already knew what was there on her way. And she said one of those people, one of those shopkeepers outside the shop, called out to her as she was walking down the steps and said, uh, she'd already passed by his shop. He said, wait, I have just what you need. <laughs> and she said, I stopped. And I turned around. She said, and then I thought to myself, how would he know just what I need? But it's such a siren call when somebody says, I have just what you need, as if there could be such a thing that's just what you need in terms of material thing that's going to be the answer to all your pain and suffering forever, and that this other person could know. But it's such a siren song. We turn around and we look. It's just conditioned in there. I thought about it could be a talk about uh, uh, really the fourth noble truth that there is a, or the third, that peace is possible and that there's a path to it. And that it's not a complicated path, but it's hard. I, I remembered last night that everybody had uh, enjoyed James's postcard about uh, you send in for a demo tape and easily you'll learn something, you'll sign up for a course, and that course in very short time is going to produce mind states that will be quite liberating according to the postcard. Well, according to this uh, advertisement in this week's New Yorker, you can even do it faster than that. You can uh, buy a Japanese bath kit um, <laughs> and give people the gift of enlightenment, it says here, with this bath kit. It says it's an age-old ritual seaweed soap and natural scrub mitt to wash away the day and mineral salts, a floating candle, and incense to wash away everything else. <laughs> Would that it were so easy. It's not that easy. 
I thought to myself, this might be a renunciation talk. Could be a renunciation talk because renunciation is such a key factor in beginning to train the mind not to be seduced into greed and into anger. To renounce what comes up spontaneously as the impulse of an untrained mind or heart. It's like following the current instead of trying to get across the stream. Really allow yourself to pick it, be picked up by the current and carried downstream. I was um, out doing an errand on uh, the day after Thanksgiving, and I stopped to have coffee somewhere. And I overheard the person bringing the coffee to the next table saying to the person there, don't buy anything in a retail store today. And the person said, well, why not? He said, well, and she said, well, everyone else is. And it's really important to make a statement that we are not going to get all caught up in the national pastime of shopping. I thought that was a really very interesting thing to say, that um, the day after Thanksgiving has become a holiday of shopping in its own way, I think, um, as a, a, a tradition. And I think about that sometimes, and I think, what does that mean about living in a culture that has traditional days where the um, ritual for the day is shopping? Um, it's certainly not going against the current of materialism and consumerism and imagining that happiness can be had from something that you buy in a shop. And in fact, really training the mind to think it needs something else and something else and something else of a thing else rather than a peaceful heart. And think about uh, simplicity as the keynote of how we live here and the possibility of living this very simple life here together. And I know from all of you, because a number of us meet together and talk together every day, that however much difficulty comes up in the mind, and it comes up in everybody's mind, there are moments of peace for everyone, moments of heart opening, and moments of ease. And we're not shopping, or buying, or getting, or spending. We're just being. It's a very uncomplicated life. So I thought, well, Maybe this is a renunciation talk about renouncing and the unslakeability of lust and discovering it through renunciation and through the discovery having lust diminish. I'm not prepared to say, as the suttas do, it falls away, because I don't know about it falling away, but diminishing. I feel comfortable enough saying that. Then I thought, well, probably it's actually a karma talk. It's a karma talk because this this idea I got from Andy and part of his commentary. He said, reading the sutta, you had the sense that some of the cows wouldn't make it to the other side. And his comment about that was, that despite our best efforts, sometimes we get caught up in things 
we go downstream a little bit. Maybe don't go all the way downstream, have to catch our balance again and start again. But we don't always know all of the factors that are involved in our waking up, in our coming to safety to the other shore. It's very complicated. And in a sense, when I read that, I didn't feel like that was uh, depressing or demoralizing, but really uh, supportive that we didn't have to feel any of us, that I don't have to feel myself entirely responsible for how my own development unfolds. I can bring to it the fullest intention and try as hard as I can and recognize that it's not completely up to me. It's completely up to everything. Really completely up to everything that's ever happened. So it's really a karma talk, I thought. You see, I was working hard on trying to decide what kind of a talk it was and whether there was such a thing as free will. You remember back to last Saturday night we talked about how free is the will after all. And so I thought about that and reflected about that. I had a very good time, by the way, preparing this talk, just deciding what it was about. <laughs> so then I thought, well, actually what it is is an intention talk that James had talked last night so stirringly about intention. And I love that happiness book when he reads from it. I think it sounds so easy. A person has a devastating series of experiences in a life and says, quite correctly, I have a choice now. I can either do what would be culturally accepted as the reasonable response to what happened to me. Everybody around would say, well, it's quite understandable that this person is desperate and has given up all hope and has no energy for a new life. Could take that road, or you could say, I choose life. I'm going to do it another way. It's not a path that, it's not a choice that any of us hopes we're going to have to be able, that we would need to make in this lifetime. But it's a possibility. In truth, when I hear those stories, I think to myself, I think there's a great deal involved in making that choice. I don't know that we are, each of us, equally able to make that choice. I don't think it's all a matter of individual will. I think people have different constitutions, different neurology, different ways in which we respond to blows and challenges. So maybe the degree of ability to say, I'm going to do it differently, maybe the ability to say, I'm going to do it differently, is the same. And the degree of success about whether or not we can do it differently varies from person to person. But that very decision, I am going to do it differently, is a possibility for all of us. I went back and read the... Uh, Sutta talk, the Sutta before 34. The 30, 34 is the shorter discourse on the cowherd. 33 is the greater discourse on the cowherd. And uh, the shorter one only tells about the part of getting the cows across the stream. The longer one tells about taking care of cows in general. 
and it has the 11 characteristics that a cow herd has to have in order to take care of cows successfully. And I really uh, commend it to you. So at the end of the time, we'll have a list of all the suttas, and you can read it on your own. But it has a list of uh, things that a cowherd has to do. Clean the cow of um, flies' eggs. Um, be able to dress the wounds. Be able to uh, clean the sheds that the cows live in. And in each case, there's... a uh, bit of a discussion about the ways in which either lust for something else at that point might come up that might disturb the cow herd from continuing straight ahead and doing what she or he needs to do, and on the other hand, aversion for the task that's at hand that might distract the cow herd from doing what needs to be done. It talks about that the lusts and the aversions could arise in any of the sense doors, all six of them, counting the sixth, which is thoughts. And in any of those ways, we could, just we could, just as the cowherd might, get distracted from the job that needs to be done. And in each case, in that sutta, it says this is the 11 characteristics, these are the 11 capacities of the cowherd. We need those same capacities. Pay attention not get distracted this way, or this way, or this way, or this way. Someone told me such a sweet story about uh, the frittata this morning that was a bit late, because just sometimes they are in getting served, and that there was a little uh, note on the table, uh, on the breakfast table, uh, with a space and a potholder bottom, that said frittata coming. And uh, there was cereal and all the other things. The person who told me the story said that when the frittata came, could smell it before it came, suddenly everybody's eating slowly, cereal, deliberately. Suddenly, everyone's standing at the table as soon as the frittata is out. I thought that, first of all, I thought it was wonderful. I thought it would be a that I had a lovely sense of it. I myself had the same frittata experience in the yurt, where also the frittata came later. <laughs> and I know that all of a sudden, before there's a little sign that says frittata coming, you don't know there's a frittata coming, you don't smell the frittata coming, you don't want the frittata. Then it's, nobody went into the dining room this morning thinking frittata. You weren't thinking it until you saw the sign that said about it. Until then, the cereal was fine. Then you see a sign, all of a sudden, frittata emerges as the one thing that's going to make the whole difference in the whole day. It's just the way it works. And here we are, all of us, guarding all the sense doors and paying attention to it moment to moment. Imagine in a life the numbers of things. So almost finally, I decided it was an equanimity talk. <clears throat> and going back to the idea of despite our best efforts, we are conditioned to respond, and we might at any moment become distracted. And all of our training and all of our conditioning has to do moment to moment with how distractible we are. 
and I thought about uh, who's going to make it to the other side of the stream, and I thought about uh, the equanimity reflection. Every individual is heir to her or his own karma, which I understand quite comfortably is not meaning tough luck or too bad wherever you are, but really as a, a deep understanding of the way that things are interconnected, that everything is conditioned and arises as a result of everything else. It brings a certain balance and ease to the mind. It also brings up a lot of compassion. We're all trying so hard. And we can do a lot with trying and intention. You realize as well that what comes up for us and our response to it, what comes up for us is conditioned by everything that ever was. Our response to it is well conditioned. And somewhere in there, the element of grace, I think, when things just work so that the heart can stay open. I thought about the fact that I was following the metaphor of the stream all the way along. And I remember once telling James a story um, that happened to me when I was in Grand Rapids. And he said, uh, that's a good name for a city, you know, Grand Rapids. Because I was saying that this whole story about you never know it could be this way, this way. And it happened in Grand Rapids where you don't know it could be this way or this way. And I thought to myself, we're really all living in Grand Rapids. could be this way or this way or this way or this way. In the middle of the stream where the rapids are very grand. So I decided finally it was a compassion talk. There isn't a new president yet, you know. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. The practice uh, outside of here been very much for people to uh, be with a lot of difficulty in terms of um, maneuvering and allegations and recriminations, maneuvering and allegations and recriminations. And it's very hard not to make it into good guys and bad guys and think, oh, good, my team's ahead. Oh. Fully, my team's not ahead. It's very hard to think everybody's in a lot of pain there. Really, all the protagonists in this drama, I'm sure, are very tired. It's a tremendous civics lesson, by the way, but on top of that, thinking about everybody, not even just the main protagonists, but all of the people who work with them and for them, who all thought they were going to be finished on November 7th and probably all imagined that they were going to be in Tahiti a long time ago. And they're not. They're still here. And then I thought, so are we. We are also still here in the middle of our lives, still doing this job of trying to overcome greed and hatred and delusion. Emily's question this morning about Did Buddha really mean it about overcoming anger? So counter-instinctive. He did really mean it. He did really mean it about it being a poison in the mind. 
doesn't mean that anger and aversion don't arise. They're part of the neurology system. It's what causes us to jump out of harm's way if people attack us. It's good to have a nervous system that responds so we know to get out of the way. Or we get adrenaline and we can run fast when we're under some physical peril. But mind states of anger and lust and delusion cloud the mind and really imperil the connection with our compassionate heart. So I ended up thinking, it's a, it's a compassion talk, and I think all the talks are compassion talks. I've been thinking that probably all the suttas are compassion suttas, because the teaching is a teaching of wisdom and compassion. They have to be. So I thought about the, the answer to a question that I once asked uh, Joseph Goldstein when I was practicing in uh, Barry at the Insight Meditation Society some years ago. And it occurred to me when he answered my question that it was both a compassionate answer and it was the um, answer to all questions of retreatants on retreat. The answer, should I do this or that? Should I get up earlier or later? Practice more sitting, more walking? This is sort of the homeopathic remedy to all questions. How it was is uh, I was in the middle of some very intensive practice, and I had my day organized exactly on a schedule. I was very content with it. I really thought I had good clarity. I really was seeing all kinds of things in a way that I thought was new and important. I was delighted with my practice. I had a lot of confidence. And I had my day organized exactly in a certain way that I thought supported my practice. I slept at a certain time, went to sleep at a certain time. I got up quite early. I measured what I ate so I didn't eat too much, so I wasn't sleepy. I um, drank the black tea at a certain time in the day in order to keep my energy up and my alertness up. I had the whole day organized. And all of a sudden, there was a sign on the bulletin board that said, uh, tomorrow is Oxfam Day. And uh, if you care to fast tomorrow, if you want to fast tomorrow, sign the list underneath. Actually, it was backwards. It said, uh, you can elect to fast tomorrow. And if you do, we'll take the $9 or $10 or whatever that it costs to feed you for tomorrow, and we'll make a uh, contribution to Oxfam. So that means a whole day, breakfast, lunch, tea, nothing, from the whole day to the next day morning. And uh, if you want to eat or feel that you need to eat, just leave a note for the cooks, and there's not a problem about that. So it's not very hard for me to fast. I fast with a fair degree of ease, but all of a sudden I thought to myself, hmm, I have my whole day organized around the food just at a certain time and everything just at a certain time to support my energy and it's going so well and it's all unfolding. Suddenly to have to do Oxfam, but my heart is in the Oxfam, so what should I do? So I went to see Joseph because I had an interview with him and I told him my whole story told my whole story about my practice and my whole conflict about I really want to support Oxfam, but I want to keep my strength up and back and forth, back and forth. What should I do? 
And he thought for a minute and he said the answer to all questions of what should I do. He said, do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. It is the answer to all questions. First of all, it's a hugely important answer because it's a faith answer, first of all, because implicit in that answer is the fact that, is the idea that balance is possible. Do whatever you need to do to stay balanced means balance is a possibility. And do whatever you need to do means you could do it. You could have a, you're an active agent in what happens to you. Balance is a possibility and you are an active agent in making it come to pass. And you get to choose. It's a compassionate response all the way around. It's also, by the way, a very zeal-inspiring answer. I got the idea that you can do it. Not a lot of energy. was not a problem. So then I thought to myself, well, compassion is the answer to every question. I thought, by the way, there's also only one question. It's in many disguises. I think the question is always, how are we going to live this life inevitably challenged in a way that uh, we're able to keep our hearts open? That's the question. It comes in all these myriad forms. And the answer is always compassion. So then I thought, well, if the answer is always compassion, I ought to be able to take all the leftover questions out of this bell from Saturday night and see if, in fact, the answer to all of them is compassion. So I took all the leftover questions out of the bell. And here they are. Here's one that says, um, Sylvia, I've been reflecting on what Guy said about the word translated as craving, tanha, carrying containing both greed and aversion. And I wonder whether it may be helpful to think of it as reactivity. The mind that gets hooked by the greedy, aversive, or disinterested reaction. Kind of like the opposite of equanimity. So, that was a question. I thought about it today. And I thought, indeed, it's the opposite of equanimity. It's the mind that gets hooked in lusts and greeds and confusions. And I think the mind gets tired when it does that. And I think that in moments of seeing clearly between when we are broadsided by this lust or that anger, in the moments in between of seeing clearly when we're not, realize how much suffering there is in those states and how much freedom and liberation and ease there is when they aren't present. And that awareness of the possibility of peace and the frequency of falling into dis-ease is such a conditioner of compassion So I think yes to this question, and I think the answer again is compassion. Here's a question. Next question said, my aunt, 
At the time, a 55-year-old nurse living in Oregon and a devotee of Alan Watts took an acid trip. She described it as pleasant enough, but at one point she felt she had seen enough. She was tired of the game called life and looked forward to the day she, should, she could go on to the next plane. What was my aunt's state of mind during her only acid trip? So first of all, I don't know. But second of all, I thought to myself, I was very touched by this. I don't know, but here's my guess. I think that she probably had a profound vision of how much suffering there is in this life. That the first noble truth of the truth of dukkha is that to be incarnate, that this realm of living is painful. Not to say that there isn't joy and beauty and newness and creativity and art and love and relationship. There are. But it's beset with difficulty. Everything is tenuous. Nothing lasts. However wonderful this moment is, it won't last. However wonderful this relationship is, it won't last. Nor this body, nor anything. There's no place of security. That's just from ground zero. And then the extra pain that human beings in this world wreak on each other and on the planet through greed, hatred, and delusion. There's suffering all around. I think maybe that was part of her vision. Somehow we think about How would it be to have the end of all those cravings? Sometimes the descriptions are, the fires are extinguished. I used to worry about maybe that meant that emotionally I'd be quite dead. I think it's the opposite. I think it's emotionally I'd be alive, really be able to love very fully. I like very much uh, the substitution in the notes to this volume of the Majima Nikaya, says that the word disenchanted is often substituted for dispassionate. I like disenchanted better. Dispassionate seems quieter than I, than, than I think it means. I think it means not so caught up in, disenchanted by, not so easily seduced by, what isn't real and enduring. And I think that that's the gateway to really being fully alive. I'm sitting, there's another question. I'm sitting with physical pain. I can be present with it, investigate its qualities, watch its changing nature, and understand this trains us to be with pain when it is not possible to attain relief. I still struggle with indefinite allowing of this pain while sitting when moving or changing position provides relief. How important it is, is it to stay with the unpleasant as I experience it indefinitely? I'm very happy someone asked this question. It's not either important or helpful necessarily to stay with it indefinitely. Do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. 
is the compassionate response to this, I think, and all questions. If you're sitting with terrible pain, then the mind is not balanced. You remember the first several days of this retreat, we really talked about trying to establish a level of composure and then developing an investigative awareness of what's coming up. Because we need some level of balance, some level of composure for mindfulness to arise. I don't think there's such a thing as being hysterically mindful. That, that, needs, that needs to be a certain level of balance established in the mind so that mindfulness, which is a clear, balanced understanding of what's happening, can happen. Move if the level of discomfort in your body has so preoccupied the mind that there's nothing but tightness in the mind. As long as you can open to the experience, then you open to the experience there's a certain point at which you say, this isn't working. I move, I pay attention, the body relaxes, the mind relaxes, I start all over again. Dear Sylvia, I've been struggling a lot with anger and aversion. I've been working on being mindful of the anger until it passes. However, when I get upset, I seem to ooze negativity and hate out of every pore in my body. I'm very touched by this note. I seem unable to control this, and it's upsetting to those around me. It doesn't happen so much in retreat, but very clearly in my daily life. How can I transform this anger more quickly? And then it says, please help. And it's got an exclamation point. So I read this and I think to myself, of course it's got an exclamation point, that each of us knows that it is so painful to be consumed with mind states that hurt as much as anger does. Really, we all need help. Really, the response to this is compassion. Do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. Keep the faith. There is the other side of the stream. There is safety. Had we met whoever wrote me this note in um, an interview, I would have said, What a difficult time you must have with this. And we would have talked about the fact that it's a mind state, it's not us. It's a habit that can be deconditioned. The next note said, why do we meditate? That's why, to decondition those mind states. I was really happy that I had this question, why do we meditate? We do it to decondition habitual mind states that are unwholesome, unskillful, and keep us caught in a stream of recreating suffering. We meditate to stay balanced, to stay awake. Everything else is too painful. The question after that, sometimes my desire to be a Dharma teacher is very peace, powerful, can get in the way, what can I do? I really was happy to have that question as well. I wanted to be a Dharma teacher from the very beginning, from the first time I went to a retreat. I remember where I was, I remember where I was sitting. I was in terrible pain, I was very uncomfortable, I didn't get it, nothing worked. I had a headache for most of the time, and I knew this is where I was meant to be. And uh, I had at some point a thought, 
maybe I'll do that someday. I was very embarrassed at the thought, actually. I was happy that my thoughts did not broadcast through the air and that other people could hear them. <laughs> my mind was pretty much of a mess. <clears throat> it would have been really hubris to have such a thought. But I think the thought was not inspired by the desire to be somebody important, but by the sense that there really, really is an end to suffering. And to be able to somehow discover it for myself and talk about it to other people would be the best thing that I could do. So I think it's wonderful to have that thought. It's possible, of course, we have a thought like that that could set up such striving in the mind that that would itself be painful. So that's another way to look at it. But it's, it's I think, a really hopeful, um, healthy, wholesome desire. So we have two more questions. Why have you chosen mindfulness practice over the many other practices that the Buddha taught? Since he gives the Eightfold Path as a way to end suffering, why not teach the Eightfold Path instead? This is the Eightfold Path. When we sit here cultivating mindfulness, all of the other path parts are in it. We are sitting here because we have some measure of right understanding and right aspiration. We are sitting here in a community that has taken on to live together with right speech, in this case, noble silence. We're working very hard at doing this. We're engaged in a task that's wholesome. We act together in community in a wholesome and healthy way, supports a relaxed mind and a sense of safety. So we each of us can sit here and close our eyes and pay attention moment to moment. We cultivate right concentration to hold that mindfulness, and we apply right effort all the time. We are practicing the Eightfold Path here. Any single time that we are practicing any particular aspect of the Eightfold Path, all the other seven are hidden in it. The Eightfold Path is, I I feel quite sure, a hologram. Everything is hidden in everything else. If the question is, why am I doing this particular uh, practice. Why have I chosen the the path of the intuitive or the path of the contemplative? Rather, say the path of um, the primary path of social action. Certainly, a part of my path. But why is the contemplative path the cornerstone of my life, and the service path will be the the cornerstone of someone else's? or the study path will be the cornerstone of someone else's, or the devotional path will be the cornerstone of someone else's. I think because this suits my temperament. I like to be in these kinds of communities. I think that may have had something to do with my immediate sense of, I want to do this someday. I couldn't think of another way that I could spend so much time living in this kind of community. It suits me. Then the last question was, uh, what is happiness? It says, what is happiness experientially? So I thought, first of all, all of you know what is happiness experientially. If I say to you happiness, you have a sense of what it means, happiness. Then I thought, I, I, I had also been reading uh, the fire sermon 
part of the Vinaya, part of the instructions of the Buddha to his monks about the pain of being seduced in all the ways that we are seduced by all the sense doors and by thoughts into cravings for things, cravings away from things. Talks about the end of that. When you begin to see, he says, how uh, fruitless the grasping after or the pushing away of things that won't be satisfying. Come to really see that very clearly. Then the pull towards them fades away. We're not so captivated by it. I've changed some of the words when I read you these last two. When I read you this paragraph, I will have changed some of the words. Becoming disenchanted. Becoming disenchanted with all the seductions. Craving fades away. The heart is liberated. Knowledge arises. The knowledge, it is liberated. Understanding arises. The practice life has been lived out. What was to be done is done. There is no more suffering. And then the last paragraph of that particular teaching. Not changing the words. And while this discourse was being delivered, the hearts of the thousand bhikkhus were delivered from taints through not clinging. What was to be done is done. There's no more suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 27, 2000. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.